another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Dictated today just a bit different than uh, the norm. I'm actually in my home office today. Uh, I'm dictating the show kind of late because I had to pick, take care of some stuff for the office since I wasn't going in today. But uh, once again, the global warming myth rears its head. And we have a major ice storm here in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area today. Now, last week, I think well, during one of the shows, I told you it was like 70 degrees in the morning. So we've been having this weird up-and-down weather. And uh, it started to make me think about, you know, one of the things I've never done a show on, and uh, I'm also pretty hoarse today, if you notice. So this will probably be a shorter show, and that's probably a good thing. But I've never done a show on emergency heating requirements and heating needs. And it's a pretty basic subject, and there's there's really not that many options uh, available to you when it comes to heat. You have to have something that produces it. Uh, without that, you don't create heat. So uh, it should be a short show, and that's kind of good because with uh, my voice being shaky and a little bit rough, uh, fighting this cold, and uh, I think it's a mixture of cold and allergies, uh, it may be tough. But I'm going to uh, pop a couple uh, Hall's Mentholiptus tablets, uh, drink some warm coffee, and uh, do what I can to knock this show out and make it a good show. I didn't want to go two days in a row without a show. So uh, let's uh, let's discuss the topic of emergency heating requirements. But before we do that, I want to point out something really cool. Uh, we are bringing back listener appreciation contests this week. I have some really great stuff coming to you from SOE Tactical Gear and John Willis. And what I have to give away this week are actually four um, two-point uh, tactical slings. Now, uh, John's got some stuff on the website. I'll direct you to it where you can see how these uh, slings can be used for tactical purposes. But they are a standard kind of two-point connection sling, just like a sling you might put on your uh, your hunting rifle. And that's what I've done with mine. I actually use it on my 22 Marlin uh, Model 25. I uh, did some squirrel hunting, some pretty rough squirrel hunting behind uh, some dogs with it, and uh, I was really impressed with the bungee and the sling just makes it the most comfortable sling I've ever worn. So whether you're the tactical or the uh, the hunt, hunting aspects, if you have a rifle, these things are great. Um, I will never carry another sling on my rifle after hunting with this thing. So, I have four of those. I'm going to give away two of them on Friday, and then I'm going to give away two of them the following week. So, make sure you tune in Friday as early as possible, uh, because I will be running the contest then. And for those who haven't played this before, how this works is on our website at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You go and you register with your name and email. That is all you need to do, um, your name and email. Make sure your email is accurate. I don't spam anybody. I notify people of new shows on one list and on this list. The only thing I do is tell you you won. All right? Then on the day of the contest, what I do is I'll say something like, I'm going to give out a code word, and that code word could be anything. It might be tactical slings. It could be, you know, striped skunks. I mean, I just make it up as I go along. And you send me an email with that word in the subject, and you send me your name, the email address you use to register. And if you're smart, you go ahead and send me your shipping address right away. And then what I do is I'll say, I'm going to take the 20th and the 40th person to send me an email. And that's all that happens. The emails come in that day. If you're number 20 or number 40, you win, and I send you your gift. So that's how we're going to play that game on Friday. Make sure you tune in Friday and tell other people about the Survival Podcast, uh, and you can win some really cool stuff. And we have some new things uh, coming in for that as well. 
Uh, some some really cool stuff we're starting to pick up, and some really cool sponsors that are starting to talk to us and see about sponsoring the contest. So please keep telling other people about the show. You guys are the ones that have made this show a success, not me. Um, when I started this out, I had one guy with a little box in his car and a, and a lapel mic. And uh, from there, we've run it to thousands of listeners, and we have a community that's growing and bustling, and we're... I mean, you can't find a blog out there about survivalism, a forum about survivalism, a forum about homesteading, a forum about gardening. You can't find any discussion community out there that talks about any of the things we talk about where someone hasn't mentioned us. That's you guys. That's not me. That's not a marketing team. That's fans that like the show that tell other fans. And that's what's made us a success. Please keep doing that. We'll keep coming up with cool stuff for you to incentivize you to do it. So... Today, like I said, we have an ice storm here, and it's pretty cold. Um, it's not a heavy ice storm yet. It's kind of one of those ice storms that start to coat the roads, and uh, first thing to go are the overpasses and the bridges. So I decided not to drive 50 miles in that today. Uh, it's also supposed to be one of those storms that get worse as the day goes on. I don't see us getting those heavy accumulations of ice, but of course I started thinking, well, I'm glad we have a lot of wood stored for our fireplace because what happens a lot of times with ice storms, far more than snow, as all that ice forms on the, the branches of trees, they get heavy and they break. Well, if they have to be over an electrical line, they might take that line out. And sometimes the lines themselves will even get enough of, a, of accumulation of ice on them that they can actually give way. So that's just one way that you can lose power during uh, the winter time. And then, of course, your biggest concern in the winter, unlike summer where you're worried about food spoilage, if it's really that cold, you could probably put your food outside to keep it cold. But what about keeping yourself and your family warm? And uh, so that's what we're talking about today. Now, I mean, the most obvious thing that you can have in a home to be able to keep your home somewhat heated anyway uh, during an outage like this is a fireplace. And we have a fireplace here. But one of the things you really need to think about is that fireplace is not going to heat your entire house. In fact, uh, I watched a show on a show called Mythbusters where they did a thing about could a fireplace in one room actually make another room in the house cooler? And that, this just doesn't seem to make sense, but what happens with a fireplace is you pull a lot of the air up and out of the chimney, and then you have a certain amount of heat radiated back. Well, as you're pulling that air, from the furthest rooms in your house, those rooms will actually get cooler. So one of the things you want to think about is, is there a way, even if it's not a highly efficient way, that you can kind of corridor off your living area where your fireplace is, either with doors or even hanging like heavy temporary curtains or something like that to not only hold the heat into that area and maybe everybody plays camp out for a night on the floor in front of the fireplace, uh, but also if there are people in the other parts of the house, it's not like terribly cold, that you're not pulling away heat from other parts of the house. Now, the thing about a fireplace is it's only as good as the material that you have to put in it. Uh, so one of the things I talk to people, they're like, "Yeah, I got a fireplace," and I'm like, "Oh, great!" And so yeah, if the power goes off, well, what do you, what do you get? You just have a wood pile. Oh no, we use those compressed fire logs, and I burn those things too. They're kind of cool, and if you just want to have a fire for you know ambience or whatever, they're fine. They don't put out a lot of heat though. They really do not. Uh, they're pretty good if you want a quick, easy way to start a fire. Throw some wood around them and light them, and you're going to have a fire, no problem. Um, but they're not very efficient. They're okay as a get-by, but I guess my question is, if they burn about three hours, and you have a box of six, then why do you think you have anything more than 18 hours worth of emergency heat? And it's a very inefficient heat. It's only going to heat a small area. So do you have a wood pile? No. Okay, well, if you, don't have a, if you have a fireplace and you don't have a wood pile, 
for you know lack of a better statement, you don't really have a fireplace. And trust me, you know Kroger, Win Dixie, and all these places you can go buy some wood and those little bundles. First of all, those bundles don't last very long. Even the big bags don't last very long. But uh, when there's an ice storm and power starts to go out. You better be able to slide on into the grocery store uh, across the ice very quickly because everybody else is doing the same thing. Like any other type of disaster preparation, people react after the disaster, not before. So making sure you have a wood pile is important. My next question to you, if you have a wood pile, is it covered? Do you have like kind of a wood shack, you know, some way to keep your wood dry? Now, your firewood can set nicely stacked, it can get wet, it can dry out, it can get wet, it can dry out, and as long as you're using it like your stack lasts you a season, and you're not trying to keep it for three years or four years or whatever, it, it's not going to ruin it because it got wet. But it's not going to burn while it's wet, right? And it's not going to burn efficiently while it's, while it's wet. So if you don't have kind of a woodshed type arrangement, then what you need to do is when this kind of weather is starting to move into the area, you need to take a certain amount of that wood and bring it either into a, uh, you know, maybe you have a storage shed or a garage or into your home. You have to have dry wood, uh, definitely to get the fire started, but really to keep the fire burning efficiently. If you take a, a, a wet log and you throw it onto a hot fire, it will burn. But it will waste so much heat during the time it's drying out and steaming out that log. And by the time the log is dry, a lot of the uh, material in it has kind of gone away in the vapor. Uh, you get a lot of residue in your chimneys that way. And uh, what happens is when that log finally does burn, it just kind of burns like a shell. It doesn't throw off that good solid heat. So these are things you need to think about if you're relying on kind of the number one backup heating source in America anyway. as a fireplace. You also want to think about the quality of your wood, where you're getting your wood from. Um, just to see what was out there, we picked up some wood the other day to burn, even though we have plenty of it here, uh, from uh, Tom Thumb and from Kroger. The stuff we picked up from Kroger was by a company called Big John's, and it was in a big, like a giant onion bag full of wood. And uh, it was good wood. It was mostly oak, I would say, and uh, maybe some cherry and maple. It was large pieces. They were heavy. It was well-seasoned. It burned beautifully. It was expensive if you would have figured out how many of those bags you needed to get a cord instead of just buying a cord of firewood, but it was good wood. Um, the stuff we got from Tom Thumb was in nice little bundles. It was clean. It looked nice. It looked like beautiful wood. I'm not sure what kind of wood it was, but what I can tell you is it burned hot, and it burned fast, and it didn't last very long. So when you're sourcing your wood, if you don't cut your own, whoever you're buying it from, you need to really take a look at what you're buying because... If I had bought a cord, you know, which is a 4 by 4 by 8 foot stack of firewood, uh, of the type of wood that I got from uh, from Big John's at Kroger, I would have been happy. If I would have paid for a cord of firewood and got the kind of crap that Tom Tum was selling, and I can't complain when it's in a little bundle for 3 bucks, right? But if I bought a cord of that, I would have been really, really upset. So you need to take a good, hard look at wood. And when you look at wood... And it's kind of a lightweight wood. I don't even care if it's a hardwood, but it's a lighter hardwood. And it almost looks like, you know what, that almost looks like a board when it splits. That's the kind of wood that's usually a softer hardwood. They burn really hot. They burn really fast. They don't have a lot of duration. The best firewoods for your fireplace are things like pecan, hickory, oak, 
mesquite is actually surprisingly good for burning in fireplaces as long as it's mixed with other woods. It doesn't seem to, to really keep a flame going very well by itself. It does a lot of hissing and popping, but throws a lot of heat, and it burns very, very efficiently. Uh, another thing with firewood, it has to be seasoned. You can't go cut a tree down today and throw the wood in the fireplace tomorrow and expect good results. It has to be split. So if you're going to rely on a fireplace, my advice to you is own a good chainsaw. See if you can find a place where you can cut some of your own wood. Um, at minimum, get yourself a good splitting mall. Uh, more ideal is to get yourself a good hydraulic splitter. and They make some that aren't very expensive. They kind of work like a car jack. Those are pretty good. And um, Think about this. If you don't own land... Look around and see if you can find places where construction's going on. People are pushing trees down for construction, things like that. A lot of times you can ask permission. You can cut a lot of wood that way. We've done that quite a bit. We've got out where they're putting in new strip malls or whatever, and there's a lot of pin oak and, uh, and honestly some mesquite mixed in around here and uh, some other hardwoods. And we'll just go and say, hey, can we cut some of that? And the construction crews usually don't even know if it's okay. They're just like, yeah, whatever, and we just you know go ahead and cut it. So think about that as one source of your alternative heating, but let's look at some maybe less conventional things here as we go forward. Now, I have some friends, and uh, I asked them what they did about this, and what they said is they had a couple of these little electric space heaters. And I'm like, well, you understand that if your power's out, your electric space heater's not going to work. And they said, oh, yeah, we know that. We They actually have a fireplace as well, but they had a few years ago a situation where the heating system is what broke in the middle of winter. It was a pretty cold winter around here. I think they were having, you know, it, ha- it always happens at the worst time. We're having like overnight lows of like 18 degrees. And I know if you're from Maine or Michigan, you're like, yeah, whatever. We sweat at that temperature. Folks in Texas, an 18 degree night is a cold, cold night. And we're not prepared for it down here uh, because it just doesn't happen very often. And they said, well, we ran out to, uh, to Walmart, we bought like three of these little space heaters, and we plugged them in surrounding our living room. We all just kind of stayed in there overnight, and uh, that got us through. Of course, they didn't have any wood for their fireplace, so that was their they're out. And once they did that, they realized that it was a good idea to have these. They picked up a couple more, and they just keep them in the house. And if they have like a cold room, they're trying to warm up a little bit for a guest or something, maybe they'll put that in there if they're having a part of their house that doesn't heat as well as everything else. But mostly they just stay stored in the closets. And I thought, you know what? These things are not expensive. You're talking 20, 30 bucks for a lot of these things. They're not efficient. They burn a hell of a lot of electricity. But if the, if it's the difference between being absolutely miserable cold in your home and being warm while you're waiting for, uh, or trying to repair a furnace, well, these make a lot of sense. So that's something else that you might want to consider. If you use gas heat, especially, uh, let's say there's some kind of disruption to gas service, which can happen. Um, so gas is generally a better source of heat, more dependable, more reliable than electricity, but anything is more dependable and more reliable until it breaks. So that's another instance where you might want to have a couple of these small electric heaters. Uh, so that's something I don't think many people really think about because they have the reaction that I did at first. Hey, wait, man, if I'm a... If I'm out of power, then what good is this little electric heater? Well, remember, it's not just the power that can fail. It can be whatever your actual furnace or heating uh, system is that can fail. On the note of um, gas, if you have electric heat, one thing you might want to look at is installing a couple small uh, gas space heaters. Maybe one at least in kind of the living area of the home. And uh, maybe if you have like a big family room or something like that, or maybe in the master bedroom as well, they're really inexpensive to install. Uh, 
They don't cost a lot of money. You do have to provide ventilation for them. You probably want to get it installed by a professional. But you can look up on the Internet. There's tons of sources of these things. And, uh, for instance, I used to go hunting at a place called Boar Hollow down in Central Texas. And what the guy did is he set up a bunch of travel trailers, and each one of them had one of these little uh, space gas heaters. And they had a fairly large propane tank that one main line fed all of them. But for individual use, they could be fed by one, you know, like the same type of can that you use on a uh, on a gas grill for outside, that type of a can. So that's another option to look at. It gives you a sense of, it gives you a, a, an independent heating source. As long as you have the gas, the heater will run. Uh, so that's something else that maybe you could look at having around. Now, there's another heater out there that gets a bad rap as being a hazard and causing dangers and possibly having fires. And in the old days, I guess that was true when these things first came out. But there's modern kerosene heaters now that are absolutely exceptional. Uh, they are safe to use indoors. You do have to think about ventilation. You want to turn them off every once in a while and things like that. But in general, they're pretty safe. Uh, they're designed so that if they get tipped over, which is a big risk, that they'll immediately go out. And uh, kerosene is a relatively inexpensive form of heat because it's, it is a very efficient heating method. Um, I'll tell you kind of a cool story about kerosene heat. Back when I was living in Pennsylvania, and I ended up losing the job that I moved there for due to a layoff. And I was getting ready to come back to Texas, but we decided we were going to stay there until that school year ended. So we stayed through that winter. And we were looking for ways to cut our expenses. We had uh, an existing kerosene heater we just had as a backup. We went out and bought a second one. And we would run two kerosene heaters in the house at night, and we turned all our heat. And we had those terribly inefficient baseboard heaters, uh, which is just terrible to have, but it was what we had there. And we would run these kerosene heaters, and we would turn the baseboard heaters almost off. And even in Pennsylvania winters, uh, it would be kind of cold, and we'd all be bundled up on our blankets and all. Um, but we stayed warm, and it really did help us get through that time, uh, spend a lot less money. Even though kerosene has an expense, it was a lot less expensive to produce our own heat with kerosene heaters uh, than it was to you know pay for that from the uh, the electric company. So these are, I mean, there's something you really can take a look at. Uh, anybody can use them. It doesn't take a real rocket scientist to set up a kerosene heater. You do have to think about where you place it in your home. Um, you Again, you don't want to have it in like a sealed area. Uh, but a general home has enough uh, air exchange in it uh, that as long as you're not putting it in a small room and closing the door, you're not usually going to have problems with a kerosene heater. It may be a good idea. In fact, I would probably advise you, if you're going to use a kerosene heater, to get yourself some of the CO2 detectors in your home. Uh, that'll help you make sure you stay safe uh, and alert you early if there is any kind of a problem. All I can tell you from my personal experience is that we used them. We used them for about four months of that winter, and uh, we had absolutely no problems whatsoever. And uh, it was actually really kind of cool. It's one of the fond memories that we look back at as a family and go, you remember when? You know, it's one of those types of memories. So uh, one thing I can tell you for, for sure is if uh, if it's, you know, 20 degrees outside or zero degrees outside and you don't have a fireplace or you don't have any wood for your fireplace and your power's out, if you have a, you know, a kerosene heater with, a few, you know, 10, 15 gallons of reserve fuel, you're going to be really happy that you have it. It's not much of an investment. Uh, so it's probably worth doing. Now, down here in Texas, we actually gave the kerosene heaters to the people that bought our house up there. We didn't really feel that we needed them down here. A fireplace will get us through. We just don't have that rough of a winter down here. Uh, but if, if I were up in the more northern climates, I would never not have uh, a good quality kerosene heater. 
and a reserve supply of fuel with it. Now, another thing I actually want to do an entire show on at some point, and I've got an expert out there that's going to help me get through this. I just haven't had the time to put it together yet, because it's not a subject I know a great deal about, is backup generators. Now, if you have a backup generator, you still have your electricity. So whatever your source of... uh of, uh, you know, heat was, as long as that's not what failed, you know, we didn't have the furnace go out or whatever, you still have your, like, you still have your electric heat. Now, now the issue there is that when you look at what draws from the power distribution service at your home, heating and cooling are the highest, and heating's higher than cooling. It takes a lot of electricity to generate heat. So if you're going to go the backup generator route, there's a couple things you're going to have to do. One, you're going to make sure that you have enough uh, power coming out of that generator to run your heating source. Two, you're going to have to then prioritize what else do you keep running. Because you probably have to go and shut down a lot of things while you're running on your backup generator. You probably want to keep your cool, your, you know, your freezer and your refrigerator and your heat running. That's going to take up a lot of power. So then you have to decide what else you're going to be able to use. And that's something you probably, if you're going to do a backup generator, right, you probably want to get a qualified professional to help you out with that. Um, there are devices that are a couple hundred bucks that actually act as a go-between between your switch box, you know, your, your fuse box, and the power grid. So that should the power go out, you can basically switch over to your backup generator and pump the electricity from your generator through the entire distribution system of your house. You can get the power there. It's not that complex to do. The problem is, is if you have a generator that's producing 5,000 watts and your your home is trying to draw 6,000 watts, it just doesn't work. You have to limit how much power that you take. So it's probably a really good idea to consider a backup generator, not just for this, but for other means. Uh, but again, to seek you know a good qualified generator professional when it comes to picking a generator and installing it in your home. And from the things we've talked about today, you should realize that even if you have a backup generator, you still need to worry about other sources of heat. Uh, number one, let's say you store 50 gallons of gasoline. Um, that's a pretty good reserve of gasoline, but if you burn seven gallons a day, uh, seven days, you are out of gas. So you've only got seven days of fuel there for your generator. And there are instances where people go longer than that with major winter storms without power. They're rare, but they happen, and you have to plan for the worst. And 50 gallons is probably more than most people would keep around. I would advise you to keep at least that much around. If you're keeping that much fuel around, you need to stabilize it, and you need to rotate it every once in a while anyway. You know, go pull five gallons into a can, dump it in your car or in your truck, go down to the gas station, get five more gallons, give it its own treatment of stabilizer, um, because you can't put it back in there with the other fuel and, you know, compensate for it. So stabilize it in the can, dump it back into your storage container. And if you keep doing that, your gas will last a very long time. You do have to take that step as well. But again... Even if your power's on, it could be your furnace, your heating system that fails, so you need to have some of these other methods of backup heat. Uh, so again, you know, just kind of recapping what we talked about today. We talked about gas-powered space heaters, uh, kerosene heaters, backup generators, fireplace, and uh, just basically your electric space heaters to compensate where you still have power, but you don't have heat. Let's say that everything has failed, though. You end up, for some reason, no matter what kind of a prepper you are, you're now in your home. You have no source of heat. Everything's wet or frozen outside. There is nothing you can burn and there is no fireplace. There is no power to the home. So you have no electricity. 
And basically, the only thing separating from you and the elements are the walls of the home and the roof of the house and the floor. And it's going to get very, very cold in your house. And now you have the, you know, worst case, truly a survival scenario. You know, it could even be that for some reason you've end up in a, in a house that's not your own, uh, in some kind of survival situation. All right. What do you do now? I mean, when you think about that for a second, what do you do? It's say zero degrees outside. The inside of that house is going to get well below freezing. And that is cold enough that without some source of heat, uh, you truly risk hypothermia and or death. Well, there is quite a bit you can actually do with what's generally found in the, in the home. And it's uh, what we refer to in our survival training in the military as building a cocoon. The reality is that you carry your own heating system with you. You carry a heating and cooling system everywhere you go. It is your own body. And when you're hot in the summer and you sweat... And uh, the sweat evaporates off your body and cools the skin and helps to keep your temperature down. That's your cooling system at work. And uh, when you're cold in the winter, but you put a jacket on and a hat on uh, and some warm shoes and socks and, and pants on and go outside, and you stay warm, even though it's 40 degrees outside or 30 degrees outside, or you're sitting on a deer stand, it's 25 degrees it's that heating system that keeps you warm. And that sounds pretty elementary, but I think a lot of people don't really get it. They don't really get the fundamentals behind it, and it's important when you're trying to survive. And here's what I mean. I talked to a vet one time uh, about one of my snakes, and I do keep reptiles. I've mentioned that before. I won't go into it much, but this vet told me how frustrated he would get when a... Uh, you know, a, a person would bring one of the reptiles in in the freezing cold temperatures of winter, and they would cover it like in a blanket or something. And you see, these people don't understand. They're keeping snakes, and they don't get it. I said, well, what do you mean? Um, seems like a reasonable thing to me. And he says, like, look, they're cold-blooded. They don't produce heat. You put a blanket on a snake, it does absolutely nothing to keep it warm because there's no internal temperature to contain the blanket that keeps you warm keeps you warm because it contains your body heat. So if you put a, a an ectothermic animal in there, it doesn't stay warm. It doesn't even remotely stay warm. It does absolutely nothing for the animal whatsoever. Well, the reason that applies to us is because it does do something for us. It does work for us. And what a lot of people do when they're putting together some kind of a survival structure is they try to make it as big as possible. This applies to wilderness survival as well. I don't talk about wilderness survival, not really the focus of my show, but in this instance, this is very much a, a domestic and a wilderness survival technique. When you are building a shelter, you build it as small as you possibly can, because the smaller it is, the greater rise your body heat will have in the area. So one thing you could do in a home is maybe gather together the mattresses and create basically a very small cocoon uh, with blankets and pillows in it. And if you go in there, you get a very high insulation factor. That's going to keep you warm, and that will help you survive a very, very cold night until you can do something to rectify your situation. That is the extreme cold weather situation if you're actually in a, in a home, in a structure. One thing I'll tell you, going outside and building a fire is probably not a good option. 
Uh, people would say, well, I'd rather be in front of a fire out in the cold than in the house in the cold. And, and no, you wouldn't. A fire outside is very inefficient. It can't keep you warm. It can keep you alive. But if you build a cocoon situation like I just described to you, your body heat will keep you far warmer than any fire ever will. You know, and I learned this in the Army, and one of the things that we would do in the Army, we'd go on these field training exercises, and we'd have like a foxhole uh, at a defensive position, and there'd be two men manning that foxhole. And behind it, you would put a sleeping position, and you'd dig a very shallow hole in the ground, and you would stretch a, uh, a half of a uh, shelter tarp across it, and you'd camouflage it by covering with pine straw and, and leaves and whatever you could find, whatever was on the ground around there to camouflage it. It would be a very small hole that you would crawl through to go down into this, this little shallow grave, for lack of a better word. And the way this would work is when you were on alert, you know, you weren't on full alert where only one person needed to be manning each fighting position. One guy would go in the foxhole and the other guy would go down in this little hole. And, uh, you know, I did that in basic training in uh, South Carolina during the winter and we were out there on some nights that it was, you know, it was down in the teens and it was warm in that hole. Uh, you know, with a sleeping bag and you crawled down in that hole, you were complete, you didn't want, when it was your turn to come back out of that hole, you didn't want to come out of there. Now, that little hole was in the dirt, right? It was only maybe two feet deep at maximum, covered with a tarp, which is a terrible insulator. Yet your body heat is what warmed that hole up. So, you know, this stuff works. It goes back to the most ancient things that you can think about. And uh, it really can keep you alive in a tough situation. So I know today's show was a little bit different. It was kind of a change-up. Not even at 30 minutes, so it's a little bit shorter than normal. Uh, but this is about all I've got in my voice today. Tune in tomorrow. I'll go back to some other stuff and uh, see what we can come up with next. Remember, Friday we're giving away some slings from SOE Tactical Gear. And if you have any tactical gear needs, bags, slings, uh, holsters, you name it, go on by SOETacticalGear.com. Give John Willis a business. He's been really great to us here at the show. Again, this has been Jack Spirico with the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.